Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. As our world has slowly shifted from feudal kingdom-based authorities to democratic nation-states with elected officials, the issue of land reform has been ever-present. Much of the angst that serfs and peasants experienced three centuries ago culminated in the French Revolution. After this monumental movement, several kingdoms gradually moved toward being nation-states, and the shift in idea of what leadership is involved a huge rewrite of land ownership And over the last 250 years, European land ownership has been rewritten time and time again. Over the last century, it's pretty incredible what happened in Germany. People collectively chose to reconsolidate their land after the fractalization that occurred due to the Napoleonic Laws. Wait, what are the Napoleonic Laws? Napoleon abolished the status quo where land was passed from eldest son to eldest son and decreed that land would be split equally between all sons, not realizing that a few generations later, due to exponential family growth, there would not be enough land to go around. By the early 20th century, the problem festered. People owned tiny vineyard subparcels across long stretches of land. Around this time, affected regions began to discuss the possibilities of pooling their land and redistributing vineyards into more cohesive units. The problems became especially noticeable in the 1800s. This is when several regions put plans into motion to correct the extreme issues created by the Napoleonic Laws. Much of the initiative came from within the Austro-Hungarian Empire. We may not hear about it too much today, but in the early 1900s, the groundwork was laid for major land redistribution. In the 1960s and 70s, Land redistribution was underway in many countries in addition to Germany. In Germany, this entire process of redistribution was called, and is called, the Flurbereinigung. It affected different wine regions or Anbaugebiet in different ways, and really continues to affect them today. In the Mosul, this meant big changes in the way vineyards were farmed and harvested. Suddenly, growers could own the entire stretch of land down the hillside, and as such they could farm it using winches, which was much more efficient than sending individual pickers to this and that parcel on the same hillside. By organizing plots north to south on the hills 
and by installing roads that the multiple owners could use to transfer labor and grapes, growers were better set up for the basic tasks of farming and harvesting. Before land reorganization, you needed to fund 2,500 man-hours per hectare. After Flubbereinigung, 1,200 man-hours per hectare. This translates into tens of thousands of dollars that a winery can save just by consolidating their land. But one of the main issues still playing out today are ripples from the government-issued German law of 1971. This happened concurrent to the big changes of the Flurbereinigung. The 1971 laws constructed the concept of a Grosselage, or a subregion that was particularly distinct within an Anbaugebiet. A Grosselage is a large vineyard, essentially, but during land redistribution, many extremely special smaller vineyards were melded into large Grosselagen. Much of the uniqueness of the Mosul's top wines were lost in the homogeny of a larger region. For instance, two special and distinct vineyards, the Erziger Kranklei and the Erziger Sonnener, were both absorbed into the Erziger Wurzgarten. This is just one of many examples. In fact, many producers today still honor the previous single vineyards with special bottlings, such as Zellbach Osler's Zeltinger Schlossberg Schmidt and Lucen's Grachelhimmerreich Stable. But in the faults, where top-to-bottom hillside farming wasn't as much of an issue as it was in the Mosul, land redistribution meant different things. Growers could focus in on the uniqueness of their own soil. Many growers uprooted and planted their new, larger vineyards to different varieties based on soil types. This is where you see a major shift from other varieties to Riesling. The false wine growers also took the opportunity to build ditches that would help prevent flooding in the valley vineyards. And they planted specific tree areas to attract beneficial wildlife. But as these false growers ripped up old vines and worked to replant their new desired varieties, they kept finding ancient Roman artifacts. A spear, a coin, a sword, a gold crown, a sarcophagus, and then an ancient Roman villa. Vines most likely grew here wild before the Romans came. But when they arrived in 100 AD, They brought domesticated vines with them, and they changed the drinking culture of this region forever. The artifacts and archaeological sites in the faults date back to the 300s, just a couple hundred years after the Romans first arrived. In the Mosul, the new layout of vineyards made harvesting more efficient and economical, though some prized single vineyards were absorbed into a larger parcel. In the faults, as growers dug up old vineyards and worked to create the next stage of faults winemaking, they mistakably stumbled upon winemaking's first chapter in this region. It's incredible how one winemaking renaissance is directly connected to another in the same region 1,700 years later. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design 
developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Andrea Franchetti on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's good to be in New York, and it's good to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. So you had been a restaurateur in, in Rome and in the Marque, and what happened next? Well, I was going to just come back from New York City, where I stayed for almost all of the 80s, and where I was distributing wine. And I, I had just come back to Italy, and I... I just thought of opening, a, of starting a restaurant with some good local food in Rome. And the same thing in Yezi, which is in the Marche, on the Adriaticos, with local food there too. And so uh, I, I thought I could do it uh, at an arm's length, uh, having, some, having people manage the restaurant and me being sort of the, just the owner, financial person behind it. And uh, it didn't it didn't work. So after a month, it wasn't disastrous, but it was it wasn't as successful as I thought. And and most of all, uh, I had to go there more than I wanted to. So to the restaurants, I mean. So I just I sold it to the managers, and uh, that ended it. But I never was a restaurateur really. Uh, I just knew about food. Because I grew up also in the Marque, and, and my grandmother's from there, so I, I knew the cooking of the Marque. Just, and I've always been a Roman. I grew up in Rome. And so I know about Roman food and, and how to make the right kind of Roman food as opposed to the tourist kind of restaurant that used to be, like most of the restaurants used to be like then, back then. Now uh, all the restaurants are much better. What was the scene like in New York when you lived there? Uh, New York, though, it was a completely different situation than today, where wherever you go, you, wherever you turn, you find an interesting restaurant doing some special kind of food from in, within all possible ways of the food and all possible creativities and ideas. And from fusions to the real restitution of original foods from around the world, and it's all very well done. Uh, then there were these a restaurant by definition was an Italian restaurant, and it was a big gloomy place with waiters who moved uh, slowly. It had a Cosa Nostra feel to it, with the big you know with luxury chairs with the cardinal red coverings and there were three or four staple plates that, and uh, you know the fettuccine and and so forth and wines from Tuscany or from Piedmont Barolos which were cheap uh, and not even that 
they weren't even marked up the way they are now. That's interesting. They were just like the price wasn't very high for those bottles. Uh, but it was very monotonous, and those were the restaurants where you could possibly sell wine. And they were very surprised when I arrived with wines that cost five or eight times more than the Italian wines they were used to buying. Uh, and I had researched uh, these wines around north and central Italy, and I was trying to sell them at a decent price because I thought because there were some beautiful Italian wines to sell. and I, But I was a bad salesperson in the sense that I got very intimidated when I had to sell. I'm not made of the stuff of a salesman. But I loved going around Italy, picking the wines and then bringing, shipping them to New York. So for six years, I went on doing this and distributing wines. And the company was called River Wine Distributing Corporation. with offices on 21st Street. And in Chelsea, it was it was fun, and the wines actually sold because there was a curiosity and, and an interest for them, and they were Barolos and uh, Barbarescos and Brunello and and the first Friuli whites and a couple of very good Friuli reds. All these wines have become uh, have held up and are being produced today. They were. Uh, and they, the winemakers were just beginning. Some very few winemakers in Italy were beginning to make their own way uh, and do their own winemaking in a way that wasn't just what their fathers did. Uh, that is, if they grew up in an estate that was owned by the family, which was usually the case, it was very unusual that anybody would open a new winery in Italy as it started happening later. So, uh, again, the most interesting thing was seeing these new tendencies happen and taking place very shyly in Italy in the early 80s. You were in the Siena area, Siena-Umbria kind of border. And then what happened then? I mm, was driving north of Rome into on the highway that goes to Florence, and halfway there's an exit which is... Which is takes you in Tuscany, but right after the near the border, the southern border of the Siena region, which is the southern region of Tuscany, and so you're bordering with Lazio to the south and with the Umbria to the east, and there are it's a vast valley, very very empty, with no dwellings, very few houses which are were then and mostly still are ruins and it was not the classic Tuscany <clears throat> that people have have now called Chianti Shire because it's so popular with English people and and many others. So this was a an empty corner of Italy where I just stopped. I found this house, I asked how much it cost and they and I could afford it and I bought it along with the property uh, around it and uh, when I when I, I you know I stayed there and I when I woke up the next morning and I went to the place which was a ruin uh, I was so astounded by by the landscape and by the light of the place that I that I found myself not leaving and and I sort of forgot about my family in Rome and and just stayed there Till I had put a roof on the ruin and I put a mattress on the floor 
and I was digging in the in the fields and messing around and 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 it was really empty and with no energy or anything and I started taking care of all that and uh, I wanted to stay there so in order to stay there I had to do something there and and, and I decided the natural answer was to make wine because wheat seemed too boring to me and uh, and that's just about all that grows in that area. So I went to Bordeaux, where I had friends, fortunately, who own um, chateaus and make wine. And um, some of them are French, some are not French. And uh, they uh, they showed me around, and I, I stayed there long enough to get a feel of how many things I needed to know more about, and then... I learned about those, and then I started going back and forth. As the works in my farm, my new farm, had started, and I started planting. And I planted the vines like I saw in Bordeaux, another 10,000 plants per hectare, uh, which means you put a vine on each, you know, one meter away from the next vine in any direction. And uh, so you need a special machinery to do that, which is not the tractor that goes into the rows because the row is too narrow to have a tractor penetrating. So have a tractor with a bridge that takes a couple of rows under its belly and the driver and the engine are sitting on top of the bridge. And then that's how you plow and dig the, the soil around the vines. And then it was a matter of what kinds of wine, vines to plant uh, but what I'm saying is that I was driven by um, an emotional realization that I was in, in a perfect place, aesthetically speaking. I had found a place where I was very happy to be. And the reason I was happy to be there was not the society surrounding me. Uh, it was not uh, the neighborhood. It was not people. But it was the landscape, meaning uh, something purely very aesthetical and very emotional. So if you start working in that environment, it becomes also, uh, let's say, very ethical in the sense that it becomes your uh, hole, you know, where you hole up and, uh, and you're driven to continuously to better it. And that's the principle of, of a garden and you make this garden around you the best way possible. And you also want to make the wine tasting the best way possible. Because there was no previous winemaking in that area, uh, there, were, there were some vines that you could uh, discern left in a couple of spots near the house, which was just for the farmer's own consumption. Uh, but except for that, there wasn't any wine viticulture or certainly no appellation of any kind. The closest place where they were making wine institutionally and, and regularly is Montalcino, which is about 30 kilometers north of where I am. And um, so I, I started getting interested in the soil, first of all, and I had to plant in the right soil. Most of the area is... Uh, blue clay, impermeable um, kind of uh, soil where, uh, that is good for making vases, but not for planting 
not for planting vines because it's too plastic and it just chokes. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't let the roots spread uh, airily as they should. So the the wines are are sour, and, uh, but there are areas where the gravel is mixed with the clay, and or you go high enough on the mountain, and you're not in the XC bottom anymore, but you're more on the eroded coast, and there you have broken, newly broken stones, so you have a, a rose of kind of uh, mountain um, viticulture that you can do and but all these are all small strips that overall in the whole of the high higher val d'orcia that's the name of the valley where i found myself dwelling uh, are maybe 20 hectares overall and i i'm still cutting off little pieces because they're a little bit too much on clay so i don't there's not even that so that my first research was about soil because um, unlike other people, I, I didn't, I wasn't looking for the, a certain kind of soil, but I happened to be in a place where I wanted to make wine, and so I was looking for the best soil possible to do that, which is a very different approach. Now that I know more about it, I would go for a place that has the right kind of soil. But it's something that never occurred to me then. In that sense, I was fairly lucky because it was part luck and part necessity in the sense that I found myself uh, making wine in a place with, which had the predominance and a, percent, a large percentage of clay in the soil mix. And that made me face the music of a certain kind of wine that I had to deal with anyway which is a wine which is sort of force-fed in its roots because of the drainage being very slow. So that that is something that you get with clay. Now, you know, clay, some people like wines that come from clay, others don't. If you go to Bordeaux, you can really, it's a 50% situation. Half the people like clay, half the people hate it. Uh, if you live in a place where it's almost only clay, you kind of hate it because you think the that anything else is, has to be better than that. Also, clay sticks to the bottom of your shoes. It's greasy when it's wet, and it's very, very, very heavy to work uh, with machines, especially the machines for viticulture break immediately if they, they're used to the thin sands of Bordeaux. And these machines that are made for tight uh, rows, of, that's what they, they're used to working that kind of, light soil so once they're applied to these heavy heavier soil soils it's a nightmare you have to change the pieces the, the plows the the springs everything so and that i did and and um i ended up with all these hectares in five or six years i had planted them all 20 of them and it was a team of french people who came over from bordeaux who had planted all their lives um, that was very instructive for my team because they, they saw these French old-timers who had a completely novel, to their eyes, uh, approach to how to how you uh, live with the vines and how, how you work with them. Uh, we ourselves became very good at planting. We, we started planting even for other people who wanted to try the 
tight planting system. Most of them stopped after a couple of years because you need a lot of very skilled uh, labor, which means educating and being after the... You have to be after the viticulture almost more than if you were uh, a true biodynamic uh, believer because uh, the the great thing about biodynamics is, is that it makes people put their faces closer to the vine. And so they they start getting a sense of what a plant is and how it lives and how it progresses and what it needs and what it doesn't need. And uh, so they, they have a chance to learn more, uh, the, the archaeology, let's say, of how to make a good wine. Before, people were not used to looking very carefully at viticulture, at least in Italy, uh, now uh, this has become much better. Uh, if you have a complicated setting of vi- uh, vines where the vines are very close to each other, you have to uh, look at what you're doing very carefully um, and see that the plants are fine. And so you 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 get a feel of how, what kind of a plant it is and how delicate or strong it is and for which reasons and how to prune it and all that better than if you have a large, wide planting where it's really not important how closely you follow it. So uh, the the viticulture, that went under my belt for the first three years where you see the cycle every year and you, sort, and you learn about it. And then uh, the first berries appear, and I started picking just as an experiment, knowing that it was experimental, and then the Second time also, and uh, at that point it was fifth leaf, five-year-old plants. Uh, and um, when uh, the plants got to be six, seven-year-old, I finally picked uh, for the first time a wine that I later bottled and brought to market. And, and was what in, year was that? And that was in 1997. I mean, the story is that I brought the wine to Bordeaux because that's where I knew wine people. I didn't know anybody in Italy, except I knew people, but I wasn't very interested in learning from them, so I I wasn't seeing them much. Uh, But I thought you could really learn in Bordeaux from what they did in Bordeaux. And I also brought a bottle to the market there, and they sold that wine um, during their en premier offering along with the Bordeaux wines, and it went very well, and um, prices went up, and it went through the regular classic negoce system of of the merchants of Bordeaux, which is a complicated system that is very effective in some cases. Uh, Anyway, nobody knew about Tenuta di Tinoro wine in Italy for the first four or five years, but internationally they did know about it, especially because it was the time in which dot-com money had uh, projected lots of people internationally with an interest on wine. And so Bordeaux had become suddenly a jet-set kind of scenery with people going around with Ferraris and and swinging magnums of uh, Montrachet out of the window. So suddenly there was this, for the first time, this this vision of uh, wine almost as a fashion industry kind of item or like star system. So in those times, you could... Uh, th- so that's how Tenuta di Tinoro started becoming more expensive and and and, uh, 
and being drunk uh, along with the famous wines of Bordeaux and, and from other places, like California too, uh, where the same thing was happening also. I think that what I wonder about when I ask myself about how do people look for the highest quality of wine? In the, I mean, what is a very good wine? A very good wine to a winemaker, uh, it's it's easy to understand what, what it is if you take someone who's grown up in a classic winemaking place where there's been a battering of all procedures in order to that goes in a certain direction that has a place for the last five centuries, like in Burgundy, say. Uh, and his father's been ba- making wine, or the, or the chateau has always made that certain kind of wine, and you only try to make it more so uh, with undulating styles in, in the sense that it could be a heavy wines period in which... Uh, that the heaviness is a la mode, or you can go through periods in which the wine should be fresher and lighter and more mid-palate because that's the style in that moment or whatever. But still, you're you're in the in a canyon of gusto and of taste that is the canyon of the Merlot, the Fra- Cabernet Franc, and the Cabernet Sauvignon, and the Petit Verdot, and what have you made in that particular climate with that particular wine coming out of it. And that guides you. But if you're in a completely brand new place where wine has never been made before, what are the criterias that should guide you for a direction in your winemaking? I have never made wine in classic places. I have always been gone to new places, uh, well, twice, and I've done that also consulting for other people. So maybe ten times I've made, I've started many wines in places where they had never been planted and made before. And uh, every, uh, and the thing is to get a, to so you develop a different talent, which is uh, uh, through exercise you can learn everything, including this, including following the vision that a certain place suggests. To you and, and and you are suggested uh, a vision by the light and the nights and the days of a place and staying there it's, it grows on you and um, all the lights of the sun and the temperatures of the winds and uh, the humidity or the dryness of the air come in your, into your mind and become something invisible which is locked in the in the secret area of your mind and and that is something that has an effect so that uh, you keep it in mind and uh, it has to be translated in uh, a code sort of and, and that code is the way you make your wine so the place is the first thing that influences you in making a, a new wine a wine that does not have a style a recognized style that that it it, it should be made of uh, and so in this sort of disorder where all you have is a rich liquid because you know certain techniques like like concentrating thanks to a, a viticulture with very little berries on each plant and so forth sure you have a very ripe beautiful powerful liquid but that 
is is only the raw material, which is not, even though it, it gets better with ten or fifteen years of aging. But while before that happens, you don't know which form, which style to that you're looking for for your own wine. Because uh, you made a wine called Palazzi for a while, and then you stopped making it. And I also stopped making wines because I wasn't happy with, with what was happening. Right. So uh, it's your own evolution that uh, dictates what you're doing, and it's also the continuing influence of. Um, I mean, it's your conscious thought, really, that is a static thought, like the one of people who cut uh, dresses for fashion. It's a professional work of styling or the design car bodies or buildings. That together with what I mentioned before, which is the, um, the invisible in your mind, which is acting without you knowing it and transforming itself like the outside used to transform itself from thunder to stormy weather to sun. And this sort of metamorphosis happens in your own mind. And uh, it, as a result, you have some mysterious contributions that you give to the wine. That's, uh, Do you think uh, that your family's background in the textile industry helped you see it more as a fashion idea in terms of cutting? And uh, No, it's an example that I, I just picked. No, because they ne were never really... Um, my family is, is a very prominent textile family in America, on my mother's side, side but they very successful and very intelligent uh, and very hardworking industrialists. Uh, uh, they're not involved really with fashion as much as making money uh, with textiles, which is different. They make industrial textiles and, and chemical things like that. But um, that was just an example. I was thinking of the fashion and the fashion industry. Because they say you look like Yves Saint Laurent. You know, it's been said with the glasses. Uh, Yves it's, Saint Laurent. It's been said that you you resemble him. You know. You say I look like Feline. <laughs> no, no, no. So I, I didn't really say don't. you look. Oh, I that, said you're, you're, you. I like Feline. No, no, no. You the style, like the the speech and the type oh, of things you say, similar. I see. Similar I see, personality. Well, uh, they're, they're all uh, people that I'm glad uh, that I remind, remind you or the people of. I'm very happy uh, of that because definitely the reason I stayed 20 years in Trinoro making wine, uh, in this ex still extraordinary wine valley, because when I go there I just can't resist being seduced by it again uh, is that I'm um, the, obviously uh, I respond uh, very creatively to to, to this place it, uh, it's an extraordinary place I don't only do the viticulture and the winemaking which uh, through the years I've learned how to do and how to do in a way so that I through my efforts make a wine of a certain kind instead of just trying to save the day and avoid the wine turning into vinegar. Those are the first steps. Then you, you can also turn into what they like. In Italy, they call it the winemaker's, you acquire winemaker's philosophy. I don't see why it's not a technique, really. It's not a philosophy. Uh, but they they like to use this term. <clears throat> when uh, So you can, it's not only about 
using wood or not using wood or all things like this that everybody now understands and knows about even outside the wine world. But I mean, even people who are not directly winemakers, but it's all, there's also a lot of other stuff uh, in the f- time in which um, you keep the wine before bottling, which is two years, and you have time while the w- wine is still not stable and uh, to direct it in a certain direction in that period. And that's, uh, so the winemaking doesn't stop. It overlaps with the, with another vintage, actually. You, your winemaking, the, the, say, the um, 2013, and uh, contemporarily, you have to go back to the 2012 and, and change horses completely. And so where was I? You know, it's, and it's uh, like going to a different novel. Um, when I went to Sicily, which was uh, just 15 years ago, in uh, 2000, I was just going, visiting Sicily with no thoughts of wine in my head, but I... Uh, then I started getting them one, and I asked myself, where would be a good place to make wine uh, in such a hot island where it's difficult to make a fine wine? You can make uh, volume wines uh, like they always have done in Sicily of great quality. But if you want to stress your production, uh, you're going to find yourself with horrible alcohol levels and and uh, and the sun is too hot at the wrong times of the year. So you won't be able to make a great wine in this fabled island. On the other hand, I thought Sicily is a place where it was always possible to do everything, and everything always has happened in Sicily. Everything possible has happened in Sicily. So why not look around? And I went driving, and, and I bumped into this huge mountain where the... It got very cold, and and while it got very cold, suddenly it was covered with vineyards, and that was the place where, obviously, uh, you made the great wine. Uh, but I hadn't tried that particular berry, the wine that came from Nerello Mascalese, which is the plant that wraps all around Mount Etna and grows only there only and everywhere there, and it's pale red, not sudden at all, that grows on a mountain that that is over 10,000 feet high. That means that, you know, you have glacier on the top permanently, and so you have cold air coming down every night, and your legs, your your knees hurt. It's It's so cold even in the summer. And then the wind of the of the high mountain stars, and so it's a very very it changes a lot. All the grapes that have all ever been planted on Mount Etna get later and later and later harvested every year because they just adjust to this uh, difficulty by becoming late harvesting. So maybe Nerello Mascalese, which is a very late harvesting kind of plant uh, initially was an early harvester like a Pinot Noir but I'm, I'm sure even though people compare it a lot with Pinot Noir because it has it's fine and light and lith like Pinot Noir it is not Pinot Noir at all I mean it's a different creature for sure and uh, it did go in bulk for decades 
to places where they did make Pinot Noir and they had phylloxera up in France and, and Burgundy and they, they um, and the Macron. I mean, they... This was in the 1900s, like 1910. It was, it was in, uh, yes, it was from the 90s, from the 90s to the 10s, 20s, 30s, and then it ended then there, even the 30s. So it was a completely abandoned place because that was their market. And when that market shut, and then the war came also, but uh, until from the 30s to until now, there was nothing going on. Everything was abandoned, very, very gloomy, with big shapes of ancient chateaus all over the mountain. And I went and bought one of them, uh, the highest and the largest uh, that they had told me about, and I, and uh, I immediately. That's because I immediately recognized the potential of that place because not only and also the the, the giant that Mount Etna is with its eruptions and it's unbelievable. If you haven't seen it, uh, you just want to try to make wine in a place like that because you know as a winemaker what it means in the sense of the uh, the incredible opportunities that that lie there. And because of you want to be part of a place that is so unique, which is uh, has nothing to do with the winemaking, but it's irresistible. And then later on, you find out that it, that many other people feel the same thing, and to the point that when today there are seventy producers, and it's a little strip on the north side of the mountain. Uh, that's the only area where wine is really made on Mount Etna. Uh, and the steeper and higher you go, the more terraced it is, and so you only have small sections. The acreage is really cut up in small pieces. It's not uh, an easy, and it's very. It's not a cheap viticulture to do. Anyway, uh, I when I first had that wine, I didn't like it very much. The wine made with Nerello Mascalese, and I tried to make it better. But I did it the wrong way because I tried to do it like I would do with the with the grape that I need to concentrate more, uh, making uh, the kind of doing the kind of viticulture that does that, and the winemaking that extracts more to have a thicker juice, in other words. But that was not the right what I should have done. But I, it took me ten years to realize that because it's like changing completely your way of dressing or cooking or or, I mean, some fundamental behaviors. Uh, and it, it's something you don't do unless uh, you're lucky, I would say. It's a matter of being lucky in this case, that you suddenly see another way, and, it, and, and it's, a, it's an image that drives you. Uh, and in this case, it was an image of a pale-colored, uh, cosmic sort of royal juice that... Of a, of a Venetian red that comes from a very high, tall mountain, and that uh, this very fine wine is the answer, almost transparent, almost like a white wine uh, with very little matter in it, very little, not uh, so wave. Uh, this, this was an image, uh, and by following that direction, I found a way of making Nerello... I think, at least, uh, the way it should be, taste the best way Nerello can taste, which is, uh, means really applying techniques that are, that are different in the winemaking. 
So uh, while I initially just wanted to plant my own vines on the mountain, I ended up making the Nerello, which I found there as a principal, as a main job on the mountain. Now, this thing um, about going to a place and be very attracted to it and, and, and really not knowing what to do but wanting to stay there is the, it means that there is something you are finding that you don't know what it is yet, but it means that you sort of found yourself suddenly on a, on a path that you don't want to leave, uh, though you don't know what that path is at all. And and um, if you have always lived in the city, like almost all of us, and you go to a place where uh, the the only house is uh, thirty miles uh, in a certain direction, uh, but the, the whole uh, uh, valley is very beautiful and welcoming, and and uh, you feel uh, you you know what's happening to you there is that you are you are beginning to go to change your life completely because if you live, if you start living there, you can either, it, it could be a, become a weekend thing, so you go there for the weekends and uh, you have fun building your house and doing your garden uh, from Friday to Sunday night. But if you, instead you just move there with an excuse like that of making wine, you find that uh, that an excuse to stay there, I mean, all the time, then you will find uh, that your whole um, uh, existence changes. Now, everybody, people in America, there is a huge tradition of, uh, of the wilderness holding up the spirit of this country. You go, you can still go west, and if you you, you can't even live on the Oregon coast because it's just too wild. You have to move back a little bit uh, and so that the sea is in, in sight because it's just too, too wild and violent. Uh, so there's plenty of wilderness and a lot of people who are fed up with the, with, with the life they, they have um, have been moving uh, out in the wilderness, and it's an American tradition. It's, an, it's a great patrimony of this country. Uh, it has a different meaning uh, here because, because in America, uh, nature is not beat. Uh, nature still overwhelms. And so if you go into, if you go, uh, into the wilderness, you're going to change your life, and, and you know it You know when you do that. Uh, in a place like Italy, where nature has been beat century after century and manicured, and 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 uh, and where every spot of of country has an old ruin next to it, uh, you 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 might be just as um, as lonesome, but you are in a different kind of atmosphere, which is a cultural atmosphere which is very comfortable uh, because you can restore it a little bit by, uh, by uh, redoing the meadows that have been left, uh, re-patching up the walls that have been... That, that's the same thing in New York State, really. You know, and changing the, changing the reason for the cultures in, in that place. And, and really, you break your back while you're doing this. It's, no, it's not something you can do. Um, and, and the only way... 
the only way to do it is is really if you're making decisions like in viticulture every minute of the day uh, or every day then you have to in, intervene y- yourself you have to do things with your own hands or do do it together with other people who are helping you other workers to show them how you want it done so this has obviously a physical effect of great exercise, and that also changes you, and and uh, and uh, and you and you and you start to live by the the sun and the moon and the seasons, and uh, and the vegetation, and these forces uh, take over and and change you completely. So I think that there are some pioneering winemakers that have gone through that experience and i know several in italy and uh, when they make wine it's really the summing up the the story of the whole past year and that's part of why it's so exciting to make wine because it's a bit it's also uh, the wine is also a document of the year that has passed where you've been remember outdoors all the time uh, and in Italy, there is this, uh, there is a, there is a drive for nature, and people going looking for nature. Uh, there's all these swings have always happened, uh, uh, especially when there's economic problems and people also uh, problems of of not being satisfied with the life you're leading, you know. And then people start talking about nature very much. And uh, talking about nature is a very is a very is a fountain of uh, mis of misleadings and and mistakes because the you know you you risk becoming um, a worshipper of a broccolo or something or a carrot and and it's much more complicated than that. But if you go in if you go in the country, um, you learn what nature is and how and also about your own nature. But to go back to the wine, um, I think that in these years I've been able to shape slowly these wines by repeating them every year uh, into uh, both on Mount Etna in Sicily and uh, in Tuscany in Valdorcia. You can call it Tuscany. For the first few years I didn't even know I was in Tuscany. I realized afterwards that I was in Tuscany. Uh, Shaping them into... Uh, uh, something that uh, that that um, I know I need to repeat, and that is and that and that has its own character, its own st- style to itself. So um, mm, it's a re-edition of in a different way of that single uh, vintage um, of a certain opera, of a certain kind of expression. Uh, that who those who understand wine can recognize. Uh, so I think this is a, a big achievement that that happens very very slowly, hasn't completed itself yet, uh, but because it can always be extended. Um, but it's um, it's a it, it makes the whole adventure of um, marching into the countryside. Uh, something with the with more with that has also you also have the satisfaction of a very uh, solid document of something that you've done.
when you dealt with the Norello, you also planted Petit Verdot and Chesonese in Sicily, and you had those in Tuscany. What was it like to work with those grapes in different places? Yes, the, when you when you want to make a new wine, uh, you have to, you have to look at uh, some parameters uh, so that you won't. Once you plant it, you can't. It, it's too long to change what you've done. So you have to think about how if it's a if a vine is a, a late harvester. In other words, if it ripens. In a given place, say in central Italy or in France, it, it, uh, uh, Petit Verdot will ripen the, in the, the second half, end of October, so late, uh, compared to, say, Pinot Noir that will ripen in the middle of September. So there, there, there can be big differences. Uh, and that's just the cycle of the plant. So if you take that grape, and you plant it in a place where the latitude is much lower, like in Sicily, you know that you're going to, whatever you're, plant, you're planting will be ripening a, a month and a half earlier because there are 2,000 kilometers from where that plant grows and the new place you're bringing it to. On the other hand, so you want, but if you, you don't want it to ripen too fast because you are in a place that might be too hot, and so that would just burn it out and, burn out its fruit and it would shrivel under the sun while it's ripening. So instead, uh, you want it to be in the cool weather of uh, fall uh, before you pick it. Uh, so that's one consideration, the cycle of the plant and then the latitude and, and the altitude. Uh, if a place is up on a mountain, it's going to be ripening even later. So uh, the altitude, the, the, you know, the Mount Etna ba balances the latitude of being so far south in Sicily. Uh, and so those are the sort of mechanical decisions you make. And then you have a taste in mind. What might those two grapes mixed together give you as a taste? Do I like the idea of that kind of taste combined with that, what that soil does on that mountain, that black soil on Mount Etna, which is so spicy and sort of lacking in body, but very heady. And, and, and would it do well with what I know the wines from those kinds of berries can be like? Uh, and that's something you have to just imagine. And so you, you, you then you reach a decision. In this case, it was Cisanese, which is a very late harvester that grows uh, south of Rome, uh, and it's a, it's a very uh, aromatic red grape. And I planted a couple of patches of that, and I also planted a couple of patches of Petit Verdot, which is a late harvest, uh, harvested grape <clears throat> that grows in Bordeaux. More thick-skinned, much blacker wine than the Chisanese, but they actually... Uh, do ripen in the middle of August, which is um, a good time before because you're far away from any damage coming from the rains. And so I planted those and then I started mixing them when the plants were old enough to yield berries. And I made a wine called Franchetti, which, which uh, has my name because it's just a different wine. <laughs> Uh, than, the Pascal than, than, than the Nerello Mascalese yeah. wines that, 
that come from a plant that grows already indigenous to the mountain. So it was brought, they were brought by me. And they turned out to be um, uh, good wines for what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, of course, some years are better, some years are, are worse. But, uh, but uh, it's a very thick black wine that has a, a sort of a marzipan and citron flavor and taste. And, and then with aging, it ages well because those are grapes that I knew already that the juice of those grapes ages very nicely. And you also experimented with white wine with the Guardiola in Sicily. And I yes. don't think you had made white in Tuscany, so a new thing for you at that time. Yes, it was a new thing. There's um, the plants of... Um, Nerello Mascali is a red grape that grow all over uh, Mount Etna. Uh, every now, every 10 or 20, there's a plant of white, like it used to be in Chianti or it used to be on the Rhone or in many places, but they used to mix it all in and to have a more graceful wine when you have it on your table. There, they've been making wine by squeezing all the grapes that come into the winery they, that they set aside because they only want to make the, the, the reds and then they take all the, at the end of the harvest, they take all the whites, press them together. And it's uh, five or six, seven different plants that grow on Mount Etna. Um, some of them come from Greece, some of them, they're the different plants. Uh, the result is not, is less than exciting. And so, uh, I've always thought that if you want to make a wine, uh, you have to use one of the great, great grapes, which there are only three of in the white realm, uh, which are Chenin Blanc, Riesling, and Chardonnay. Even though Chardonnay is so boring because everybody talks about it, still that doesn't take away the fact that it's one of the great top, top kinds of fruit. And then... Otherwise, if you want to make a red, you have to use Cabernet or Merlot, Pinot Noir, if you can, if the place is okay. You know, and Cabernet there's not many others. Those are the ones. The others are second rate compared to these. Just the way the Sauvignon Blanc is less good than Chardonnay. Uh, they're good, but they're second rate. The plants, the white grapes on Mount Etna were, are, are sort of fourth rate. So I planted Chardonnay way up at a thousand meters on terraces on the north side there in my property in Mount Etna and it was and, and, and it's doing very well. You have to pick it quickly and not let it you can't let it go all the way through its ripening like they do in Chablis because uh, it, it, it would turn into a Californian kind of very fat greasy, alcoholic, white. So you have to uh, stop it and, and pick it when it's about 12 and a half in alcohol or 19 in sugar percentage, sugar percentage. And, and it's just beginning to develop and to turn into a fruit, into a grape start you can have in fruit and not just acidity. And um, by picking it that way, I, I made a Chardonnay, which is very hard to age because it's picked sort of while it's still uh, hard and then fresh. And it 
needs uh, needs more bottle time that I've been able to keep it. I've been able to keep it only for short periods. Of, I would like to keep it for a whole year and a half more. Uh, but it will. It, it after a few years, it becomes a great. It will become a great wine. I haven't seen a change enough yet. I found the fruit somewhat interesting. I mean, what's interesting you said about the Chardonnay as a variety, because sometimes it, your Chardonnay doesn't super remind me of Chardonnay no. in terms of the fruit. It reminds me sometimes more of like a Viognier or a yeah. Pinot Gris. It's a fruity, you know. Yep. I don't mean it's to be true. disrespectful, but that's... No, no, you know, there's nothing wrong. I mean, who cares about the taste of Chardonnay? <laughs> <laughs> Fine with me. It's just the wine that counts, you know. Uh, and uh, and I'm glad it doesn't really taste too much like Chardonnay, which can be really uh, that, uh, nauseating, maybe. But I mean, mm, uh, it's true, and, and that's what. And I like that about this wine because it's a, it's a, it makes it possible to use the grape as a tool. What, instead of making wine, it's like if you're making a Chardonnay. Chardonnay is a grape; it's not a wine. You're making wine. I don't think people should even know about what the wines are made out of. Uh, they should just appreciate the wine and not, of course, it's helpful to know uh, in the labyrinth of all these labels, but it's the wine that counts and not the varietal. And certainly the lava takes, sort of cuts the Chardonnay motive out of the fruit and, 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 and just lets it have a, a nice fruit. It's It's really the limestone that makes that kind of, uh, or in, in California, if it as soon as it ages a little, I mean, if you pick it a little later, then the, the Chardonnay factor explodes, uh, and and you really taste it. Also, I don't use wood, which is very often associated with white with the, the white wines of Chardonnay, and I only use I just make it you know steel for fermenting and then cement for aging. In 2009, you introduced a selection of different vineyards from Pasco Pistrero. Norello, usually old vine, different elevations. How did those bottlings differ for you? When I owned the small plots up and down the mountainside, and I, when I harvested the grapes, I, I, I realized that the grapes coming from certain areas, when we brought the grapes in, were very different in taste than the others. And so I I started, uh, I pulled them out of the mix and made them by themselves as a single Contrada vineyard wines. Now, um, a Contrada is uh, an old property in Sicily, and they're all over Italy, and they're, they're fairly well um, the board. There's a. I mean, they, people know where one contrada ends and another one starts. Um, then later on, these feudal properties got obviously cut up in different uh, in different ownerships. But the the difference with uh, Mount Etna is that the contrada in Mount Etna lay each one on a single lava spill. So the mineral the mineral mix of the ground of one contrada is completely different from the mineral mix of a ground which of another contrada. The soils are different. And so you can have, let me give you an example. Lava comes out of the top of the mountain or from a, a you know, a mouth that opens after some, some explosions. 
and and uh, on the side of the mountain, and the lava starts gushing out. And if it's a big big situation with a lot of pressure, then the lava will keep running down the side of the mountain and not stop way up high, but keep going down all the way to where the vines are cultivated. That happens very rarely, but it can it happens. It has happened very much in the last thousands of years. As the lava comes down, it can it, it can it goes a, a meter an hour. It's like a thick paste that a wall that is slowly coming down, eating up the woods and the trees. Um, but it's very slow. Sometimes it's like water. Uh, overnight, it'll, it'll go all the way down, uh, reach the bottom of the, of the valley. And uh, it's even dangerous because it comes too fast and people uh, can't get away from their homes. Sometimes. I mean, they, they always can, but I mean, it's that fast. And um, so this gives you an idea of how different the the mix and the substance of the, of the lava, which is fished out of uh, 5,000 meters down into the, uh, into the crust of the earth, you know, can be. So it brings up all this material, which then takes really... A whole century to before you can cultivate it, and as it dries, it dries in so many different ways that that's another uh, ver- uh, variable. So it can be, you know, in, in powder, very thin powder like face powder or gravel, big gravel, thin gravel, everything. So one contrada uh, is uh, one old property. Uh, and uh, it's and a lava spill comes down and it, and it spreads out and it creates a beautiful plain which later becomes a property. So each contrada is again for mechanical reasons really uh, it's it's it sits on one lava spill and there the vines are going to taste different. I mean the fruit is going to taste different from the next vineyard if it's on another lava spill. And that's a fascinating situation of Mount Etna, that you can have crews that are extraordinarily different one from the other. And, uh, and, uh, and, and we're trying to, uh, by making wine, me and other producers there, we're trying to highlight this and find a really, an already a graduatory of, um, of the quality of different contrade is appearing in the sense that there are three or four contrades that seem to be the best and we share them and cultivate them um, and it's a very interesting and ongoing work but uh, it was uh, picked up very quickly by people uh, the public the, the consumers the wine lovers have picked on this idea very rapidly more than i would have ever thought you think that's because of other people also doing it, or do you think that's because of the Burgundy model? I think the Burgundy model really helped, and it's also helped uh, that in the sense that the producers were happy to imitate it. Uh, because uh, in a new place, when you're starting all over in an abandoned place like that, you're confused and anything is good uh, to recognize. But I think it happened because there's an extraordinary communication in the wine world. Uh, more than in any other segment of, of of, uh, like of of what we do, yeah, and 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 so things like what we are saying right now, which uh, five or six years ago would have sounded, you know, like first time and crazy already, something people have heard about and and are interested in, and this is because it's there's an amazing amount of 
intelligent people who are forwarding the new, the, 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 what's going on in the wine world. And you're friends with Frank Cornelison on the island. Yeah, yes, yes. And, and you guys spend time and talk about wine. Yes, yes. Well, we'll we, you can talk about wine all night with Frank, uh, and he's the only person that it's interesting to talk about wine with that I know on Mount Etna, really. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be uh, shitty towards other people working there, but I mean, there are many kinds of entrepreneurs and, and uh, producers and uh, from naive to very commercial to every possible, they come from but every possible way of life. But Frankie, he has, um, he's asking himself uh, which is the best possible wine he can make and with, with which materials and which grapes on Mount Etna. Uh, and, and, uh, and he does Nerello with such passion and carefulness that it is, you know, it's viticulture done with his own hands that uh, he brings a Northern European, he's, he's a Flemish person, you know, uh, and, and he brings this, this, uh, this uh, almost fanatic um, single-mindedness and passion to what he does. So, so, so it's very different to what other people do. Also, he knows all about wines across Europe, uh, and, which is not common. And so he's always thinking, which grape could fit here, and is this similar to that? He has a lot of references in his mind, so there's a lot to talk about. Speaking of grapes, I see that you mostly use Norello Mascalese in Sicily as opposed to uh, Norello Cappuccio. Why would that be? Well, you know, they're both native grapes of the region. Why? They're cousins, first of all. They're not very different. Uh, Norello Cappuccio is just is a, is a soft uh, wine, ripens a little earlier, slightly darker, but it's really very hard to distinguish, though you get to learn how to, but uh, it's also almost irrelevant because it's like pepper on on, on a huge salad. Uh, there, there isn't many plants of Nerello Capucho, and they're just uh, mixed uh, in everywhere with the with the Nero, Nerello Mascalese kind. So I, 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 most people don't really look at what they they don't see they don't care about the difference because they know that it's going to be a one percent ingredient the Nerello Capucho that is coming in so they're not even going to bother about it and and uh, you will have make a better wine with Nerello Mascalese uh, than with Nerello Capucho so you might as well I mean it's not worth doing whole patches of straight Nerello Capucho. And you make a dessert wine on Sicily. Well, uh, with those white grapes I told you about at the end, we could put them aside, cases full of white grapes, and um, then we hung them on the ceiling for two or three months and, um, and then uh, squeezed them when they were a little shriveled. And, and uh, we got this very sweet juice, which then I would f- ferment and... Uh, and uh, the effect of all this procedure and both the kind, the, the grape kinds and the and the, um, the, the 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 bacteria they collected while hanging up there, it was a, it was because I'm not making that wine anymore, but 
it was about a thousand half bottles every year of of um, uh, sweet wine that smelled and taste and had a strong taste of saffron, which was probably its best side. It was a it was a, something between peasant and and uh, and 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 higher up. <laughs> Speaking of that, I mean, what's what's it like? interacting on the island of of sicily i mean i imagine you have shepherds in the area and people who have lived there for a very long time in the area and yourself and yes now um, there is um the population is very easy to get along with the just farmers and mountain sort of mountain people who are very you know pristine people who are not uh, they're not um uh no racketeering uh, t- to mention of like like you could find in larger cities uh so is it, there's no there's no it's not that you have a problem with the mafia or anything like that uh, none of us have ever had any any anything like that but uh there are a large number of i mean the whole mountain is uh, rented out or claimed by shepherds and the shepherds have when I say claimed, uh, it's uh, they. It means that they have that the, it doesn't belong to them, but they still use it as grazing ground, which is the case with shepherds anywhere in the world. But so when there was a crisis of wine and uh, vineyards receded down the slope down Mount Edna, they 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 just came in, and now uh, they they need to be pushed back a little bit higher up the mountain or in other areas that, which are not just the northern side uh, because there is a re- the reality of a new viticulture which is happening there, which is reclaiming where the old vines used to be. So there are some frictions which <laughs> just what happens is that you get a terrible fire when the winds are right, which means that they're really howling in the direction of your own vineyard and they, they light up the bush and and this terrible fires with thirty meter long ninety feet flames come rushing up and uh, and it's really dangerous and 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 you want to be lucky you know when that happens but uh, it doesn't damage the matter of fact that this last the last wine i made an o the o twelve bottling of my franchetti wine is very fumé because of the smoke that came into the grapes. I don't mind it at all. It's it's an interesting feature, but it's through negotiations and and you know and the and the inevitable dialogue that has that starts in a situation like this. You know, they 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 these things like this will stop. You know, but this is awesome that goes on. And so this is the this was the only disagreeable thing that happened. For people, to people like me and others who have come to make wine, uh, to, that, to have trouble with shepherds. You've had a, a history in terms of wine as being a little bit of an explorer, finding an area that hadn't quite reached the public consciousness, and then working there to some success in both areas. What might be next for Andrea Franchetti? I would like to make a Cabernet Sauvignon on sand. Because that's the best way to make Cabernet Sauvignon, and there are some sandy areas in Italy, in central Italy, that are fabulous uh, near the sea or also inland. 
Uh, <clears throat> that's the only thing that really I can think of as a, a very, very nice wine one could make that would be, I think, successful and, and, and very quickly could become a great wine. Um, Cabernet Sauvignon is, is slowly dropping off the, you know, the, the planting more Cabernet Franc than Cabernet Sauvignon uh, in Tuscany, which is where they, they plant most of it, and, and uh, in Italy. And um, I think that to make, and the reason is that Cabernet Sauvignon needs to be in a not very heavy kind of uh, soil like you, you have in Tuscany with just too much clay or rock. Uh, it needs to be in a gentle, sandy soil, and there you can ma make an extraordinary Cabernet Sauvignon. So that's that's something I'd like to do, but uh, it would be I would like to do a small thing, you know. Uh, but I think it's it's uh, you have I have enough to do and with with my place my places in Tuscany and in Mount Etna they do well fortunately, but it took a long time to bring them to this. And and if you start making wine, make it in a small amount and don't expect results to be. Uh, I mean, break even after 10 years, and if you can keep that going with a small profit, that's the that's really the way it should be, and it means that you've done really well. Andrea Franchetti, he's done well in both Tuscany and Sicily. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Andrea Franchetti. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.